Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Rebecca Jarvis is an ABC News Emmy Award-winning journalist and the chief business, economics, and technology correspondent for the network. She is also the host of a terrific podcast called No Limits, which I highly recommend. She talks to incredible women about how they built their careers and how they struggled through many of the very typical things that we struggle with as women. A lot of the topics that we talk about on She Said, She Said. Rebecca, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you so much. I love what you do, and welcome to my office. I'm really excited we're doing this here. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I have a beautiful new office. Lots (laughs) going on here at ABC. Let's talk about how you got here. Your journey is somewhat non-traditional in that you you took a slightly different path in, in order to get here. So talk about how you got to this point in your career. Sure. So my mom is a journalist and my grandfather was a journalist and I grew up around journalists and I remember as a kid, I would often do the take your daughter to work days with my mom and frankly, it was not even because it was a special day it was because we didn't have childcare, and so my mom would take me to the office and I oftentimes would get to spend time with her while she was putting stories together and doing interviews and I loved the interviews I always was really into the fact that she was interviewing all these interesting people and I would ask her mom are you allowed to ask that question and she would say Becky it's my job to ask that question and I love the idea that being a journalist is about going after the truth and asking questions and while you're not always going to get an answer it is your job to do the pursuit of it Um, so I, I followed that my grandfather also was a journalist I saw that throughout my childhood and when it came time for me to go to college I ended up pursuing a slightly different path in school I studied I studied economics and a lot of the people in my program were pursuing investment banking Um, but I realized at the time that if I was graduating from the University of Chicago as deep in debt as I was that there was no chance I was gonna pay that back on a journalist salary however on an investment banker salary I had a much better shot at doing that and that was part of the reason I ended up pursuing that path initially. So I went into investment banking post-college. I was working at Bank of America Securities in Chicago. And to be honest, almost from the beginning, I hated the job. I There were wonderful people there, including my husband, who I happened to sit back to back in a cubicle with. Um, and we, <laughs> as, a, as a funny aside, so my mom told me never to date anyone at work. I took that very, very seriously. I was never going to date anyone at work until my husband told me he was quitting, at which point it literally like dawned on me in that moment, wait, he's quitting. And if he quits, I won't see him every day. And if I don't see him every day, I'm going to miss him. Wait a minute. Do I like Matt Hansen? Yes, I do. (laughs) So he told us that he was quitting. And after that, there was a uh, a, a night where I told him I liked him and um, and then I ran away in, in terror because I had just told the boy that I liked that I liked him. Um, and then we started dating after that and now here we are, we're, we've been married for almost eight years. So um, 
that was investment banking. I came to a point in investment banking where I had paid off a lot of my student loans. I realized I needed to make a change in my life. I really wanted to pursue journalism, give myself a shot. And so I started pitching all of the editors in Chicago at the time, because I was based in Chicago, and I would ask them out for coffee, and I would show up to coffee with three story ideas, Mm -hmm. and I would pitch them my story ideas, and I came to a point where, and this was great advice from my mom, who said, if they refuse to write, to let you write any of those ideas for them, offer to write one for free. And Cranes at the time, liked one of the ideas it was about all of these is this 2005 it was about all of these businesses taking on huge amounts of debt that was what's called covenant light or covenant free that basically means there's no restrictions on the debt and i i didn't know where this was all heading but i i saw it from the investment banking side that there was all this debt in the system and i sort of posed this question of well where is it all going well In 2007, 2008, 2009, we saw where it ended up going. It was the housing collapse and and way too much debt. Little did I know that at the time, but I started writing for Cranes. Um, I was also writing for a magazine called Business 2.0, which had offered me a job while I was in college, and I ended up not taking it to go to London and work in Citigroup on their short-term interest rate trading desk. So I was working in both of these jobs, and um, along came the auditions for this reality game show yeah so you were so you were writing as kind of a side hustle you were still writing you were still no writing. i actually quit banking okay. i quit investment banking and i gave myself two years in my head i said you've got two years to figure out journalism if you don't figure out journalism in two years you're gonna have to figure something else out. Maybe you'll go to business school maybe you'll go to law school um because i had studied economics and constitutional law Maybe you'll end up in one of these paths, but I had no idea really what was going to happen. I just knew I had to give myself a shot at journalism because I I got to this point in investment banking where I would sit at my desk and just imagine what my life would be like if instead of doing the, for example, sell-side transaction that I was working on, if I was writing about that transaction for the New York Times or something like that. And so I gave myself this timeline. I started working, mm-hmm. uh, writing for Cranes and writing for Business 2.0. And um, I I saw that there was going to be this audition for a show called The Apprentice, a reality show called The Apprentice in Chicago. I don't know if you've heard of it. Most people haven't at this point. <laughs> ha ha. Um, no. So I went to this audition thinking that it might be a story. Mm-hmm thinking I might be able to take people behind the scenes. And I ended up, shockingly, getting on the show. And and I mean that. I was very, very, very surprised that I made it on. And I almost didn't go do it because I was really worried at that time. I was 23. I was really worried at that time that I had worked so hard to build a credibility. And I... I was really serious. I'm still serious, but I was really, really serious at the time. And I just didn't want people to think of me as just somebody who was trying to do reality TV to get ahead. I wanted people to think of me as someone who works really hard. Um, And so I ended up eventually saying yes. I thought it might be something I could write about, again, as a journalist. Mm -hmm. Um, I made it onto the show shockingly made it to the end and 
as soon as the finale finished recording, this was before Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, suddenly I was getting all of these phone calls from various employers basically telling me we want to interview you and come in and see maybe there's a fit here. And I decided, um, I was actually thinking about a job at Google at the time. And I ultimately decided it was between Google and CNBC. I decided to go work for CNBC, which had always been something I wanted to do. Covering financial news was what I was doing in Chicago, working for CNBC, this incredible network that I had spent all of this time watching and frankly watching CNBC as I prepared to go to investment banking interviews when I was getting my start, um, moved to New York at 23 years old, 24 years old, started working for CNBC. How strange was it, or sort of what was the experience like in coming from a reality show and having, to some degree, gotten the break because of that experience? How did that affect your start at CNBC? Well, I would say it really impacted my thinking because I really strongly felt I wanted people to see me as someone who believed that I needed to earn being there. I knew that there were so many people in these roles who I had looked up to for so much of my life, and I believed that it was on me to earn their respect and their trust. And so from the very, very beginning, I I wanted people to see me as someone who could be useful, helpful. So I offered to jump in wherever I could. You need research, I'm happy to do research. I'm gonna be the first person here. I'm going to be the last person to leave. And at the time, my husband and I were dating and we were doing long distance. And there were so many weeks where one of us would be about to get on a plane, either me to Chicago, him to New York, and it would just be like, no, I can't. I have to stay and do the work because this is what I've been hired to do. And thank goodness, he's an incredible partner. Um, You know, our relationship was based on that understanding and appreciation that we were both gonna work really hard at our respective jobs and he careers in your dream clearly he too. yeah exactly it's such a good point and he supported me from the very beginning and so thank goodness for that because it we stuck it out and uh <laughs> we didn't cancel too many times and then he eventually got to new york and moved to new york but it was um i think it was just in those early days for me i just wanted to prove to people that I didn't think that I was just supposed to be there because I had been on a reality show. I wanted them to know I was willing to work for it and willing to go through the paces. And even though my path was somewhat untraditional and uncommon, I was going to work hard. And I didn't, I didn't expect any of it to be handed to me. Yeah. You know, it's oftentimes hard for us as women to not over, sort of overinterpret the what other people may be thinking. We sort of make assumptions about what people may be thinking about us, but did people say things to you like little catty snide comments about, oh, she's the reality TV girl or... No, actually, I feel really lucky because I don't think any of it was, and maybe it's just selective memory that I have at this point, but actually, from what I remember, there were a lot of people who were really happy to take me under their wing and were really respectful, but I just sort of 
I just wanted everybody to know how serious I was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny. You look on your television now, and a lot of people got to these places through very circuitous paths. Um, and and I have so much respect for people coming at it from all these different places. I do think that it's really important as a journalist to think about journalistic ethics and to really understand what that means because there's a major responsibility there when you're reporting the news and frankly helping history some of that narrative is going to come from the very things that you say and i take that not just then but today i take that so seriously i labor over the words that i write in my scripts because i acknowledge that if i'm talking about the economy and i say that the economy is great that's part of history so what does that mean how does that look so it's an important thing to me. I labor over it. Yeah. Do you think you're an outlier in that regard? You know, no. There's a lot of criticism of journalism right now. But I'm curious as to how you think about uh, sort of the evolution of journalism. Well, first of all, I really respect so many of my friends and colleagues in this industry. I think every single person who I know, who I work closely with, comes to work every day with a culture of excellence, which is to say they all are pushing themselves to be excellent. And I think it's complicated. First of all, the the world we live in today is certainly different from the world I started in. When I started, we didn't have all of the social media where there's this sort of 24-7 demand. Um, And I remember this, this happens a lot less now than it did in the early days of social media, but I remember I was actually a little slow to adopt um, Twitter, a Twitter profile. And there was a story that, it had to do there was a storm and i'm not i'm a little hazy on the details so please forgive me but it was something about the new york stock exchange floor having flooding i don't remember exactly it might have been hurricane sandy it might have been something else anyway a lot of outlets reported that there was flooding and i was i didn't work for abc news at the time from what i remember but again this is all hazy, so I maybe shouldn't even be saying this, but I'm going to share it with you because I think it's an important point. Anyway, a lot of outlets reported it. A lot of people retweeted it. Turned out it wasn't true. There was no flooding on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. I kept waiting to report it until I spoke to my sources at the New York Stock Exchange and someone who could confirm it. The point in this is, in those early days of social media, there was such a race to be first, and I think that that race to be first unfortunately meant that there were things that people raced to put out without having the full facts. I try uh, very hard to adhere to the original principles, regardless of what the technology is, which is accuracy, truth, um, fairness. And so for me, I would say those are really important things, but you do have this whole world around you now and this whole ecosystem around you where, um, you know, look at what we're doing here. We have this amazing opportunity, but with that amazing opportunity comes responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. So you you moved from CNBC to CBS and now to ABC. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a bit about, you wear many hats here at ABC. 
what's a day in the life look like for you? And I want to talk about your podcast. There's a lot. Should we, we talk need to about get today? To. Because today is like the perfect example. So, um, I it is a Monday that we happen to be speaking on, and uh, this morning my day started at a about 5 a.m. when I got a call from Good Morning America for a story to come in that had started happening basically overnight. I came into GMA, by the way, my daughter, um, who's now eight months old, she, I, I, I turned over when I got the phone call and immediately looked on the monitor and was like, okay, is Isabel awake or asleep? This is gonna dramatically change how chaotic my morning is right now. Thank goodness, Isabel is a great sleeper. She was asleep. Um, so I immediately jumped in the shower at 5, got ready. Then about 5.30, she started waking up. My husband does a lot of the morning with me as well. It kind of We kind of just switch off depending on who can make it work the best in our day. Um, so ran in her room, fed her, brought her to my husband. He changed her took her, put her back down to sleep. Then I came into GMA around 6 a.m., did my first story at 7.10, then started working on my second story, which was at 8.15. Then I left there and came here to our office where you and I are and did my first interview for No Limits. Now I am working, it's, I'm looking at my clock, it's 2.30 right now. So now I'm in the process of getting ready for my world news story, which I will put on the air at 6.30. Mm -hmm. And then I will go home, hang out with my husband and daughter, put my daughter to sleep and have dinner with my husband, and then probably do a little reading on my phone, maybe some writing, depending on what's necessary for tomorrow. And then do, do it, it again. Over again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So is your typical wake up time? Usually around five. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty, I try, I'm much more uh, religious about it now with with my daughter than I was before. I mean, even if I was just waking up for her, it would still be around 5.30 in the morning most days. But at this point, my days usually are about 5 a.m. and I try to go to bed. Well, Ariana Huffington was on my podcast and she'll hate me for saying this because it's not, she won't hate me. She'll just be disappointed. But I'm not great about going to bed at night. It's like 10, 30, 11 that I usually go to bed at. Yeah. It's hard to shut it down. Yeah. So how has motherhood changed you? Isabel's eight months old. Yeah. And you talk about the scheduling piece, which is one dimension of motherhood. But there's typically so much more for us that changes as a result. What's changed for you? I'm just so happy. I have never felt happiness the way that I feel. Um, and for me, that's a really big deal because I'm I'm 38, I, I love my career, and I also love my husband, and I spent many, many, many years solely focused in those worlds. Um, and then when we started trying to start a family, it was hard. Um, we, we went through a lot of fertility struggles and weren't really sure if this was going to happen for us. And now that it has, it's been truly the best thing that's ever happened, I would say to both of us. And I think my husband feels that way too. And it also is the most, I would say, clarifying thing for me professionally because, and a, a friend of mine actually, um, Jenny Fleiss, who is now at Jet Black and one of the founders of Rent the Runway, she said, 
we're having this conversation about it. She said, you think about every minute of your time differently. You know that an hour or a minute that you're spending doing work is an hour or a minute that you're spending without your son or daughter. And suddenly when you recognize that time and the value in that time in that way, you think about it, I think in a much more focused way. And I would say I'm, it's wild to be so even I, I'm a pretty um, productive person. <laughs> I was productive before her. Now I'm productive on another level. Just focused. Yeah, your attention. just completely focused. And, you know, hanging behind me is this poster for the dropout. And in the run up to me giving birth, I was working on that project, the Theranos Elizabeth Holmes project. And I was Pretty much before Isabel came, I was sleeping about two hours a night just to get that thing done, which was one of the also one of the greatest um, projects that I, I enjoyed working on so much. But it just makes you think so dramatically about how you spend your time. Yeah, absolutely. Let's shift a bit to Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. You were really on the cutting edge of seeing this story and putting these pieces together. You've put together this amazing podcast called The Dropout to talk about this. But what was it? What did you see that others missed early on? Now it seems so obvious. Right. You've read read the book and listened to the podcast. It's like, oh my gosh, how did people miss this? It's an incredible story. But why? Why why did you see something that other people didn't? So I'm not when I first learned about Theranos, it was 2013-2014 and I was working on a story um when Diane Sawyer was at World News, she and I worked on this series called Critical Condition and it was about healthcare costs. And Theranos was pitched to me after a couple of my stories had run as a solution to exploding healthcare costs. And it was pitched as something that could dramatically reduce the cost of blood tests. Now, what was strange is that, of course, in order to put something like that on, I needed many independent analysts to tell me this is legit. And it wasn't a gigantic red flag. It was just a moment of uh, kind of stop and pause when I couldn't find anyone independent to tell me that the technology worked. And then suddenly this woman, Elizabeth Holmes, was everywhere. And I was talking to her team about interviews. And again, there were these little questions because all the things that I was trying to do the interview about, they were pausing and they were uh, squirmish about. And so suddenly it was like, huh, What's going on here? Why is this so difficult? This should not be such a complicated thing. And we got to this point then, after all of these conversations where suddenly the negative things started to come out and my team and I started pursuing it, looking at it in a much more critical way. Um, And then when the SEC charges came and the DOJ charges came, we knew that there were these deposition tapes because this is somebody who was all over the place but never did a critical interview. So had had you met her or done an interview with her? I've crossed paths with her, but not in a formal way. I would go to events 
where I would meet with her team. I went to her offices. I was invited to her offices to have a meeting, and I never made it past the lobby. As soon as I got there, they made me sign an NDA, and all the doors were closed. You walk in this lobby where you imagine that you're going to get past the front door and say hello. No, every door was closed, and I had to meet in this little side room with a PR person who told me that there, unfortunately, that was not a day where I was going to be able to meet Elizabeth Holmes. And it just over and over, these little things kept happening, and suddenly, Uh, My team and I were talking to people inside of the company who were telling us things that were jaw-dropping about how the whole thing was operating. Um, And we just kept pursuing it, and finally we got these deposition tapes, which I think are the most eye-opening of all. Um, And just the process of taking that material, putting the investigation together, writing about it, doing the podcast and the video documentary, I... I loved the entire thing because it was both completely intellectually stimulating, but also this creative process around (laughs) writing a podcast, which we inside of ABC News, this was still a relatively new thing for the company to do a podcast and then to do a narrative podcast around a new subject. And I just, it was such a, an incredible experience. So, so how typical is that? That was one of the questions that I had was, this was a very entrepreneurial mm-hmm. project that you took on. How open is an entity like ABC to allowing you to do that? Or maybe back then, it seems like it was very unusual. So what's your ability to take on projects like this? Well, I think for everybody out there who's listening right now, if you work inside of a, a large company, obviously culture even in a small company, even if you are the company, the culture is such an important factor. And one of the things within ABC News that I have personally really enjoyed is that I have been able to be incredibly entrepreneurial inside of this company, um, from starting No Limits to pursuing the dropout. And, you know, I think it's important when you're, When you work for somebody else, you have to think about what's in it for them. What am I doing? Because it makes sense. I mean, these these can be expensive things. To be honest, I have minimized every single cost possible in in these environments. Like for example, my we would go, my producer Taylor Dunn and I, when we very first started, we would be on the West Coast for a number of different West Coast stories that I would do for Good Morning America or World News, and we'd always just bang out a few interviews on Theranos. My sister's um, house in LA became one of our sets because <laughs> it was like, this is an inexpensive way I mean, literally free to to do this interview. Um, so just like you're here and we're talking in my office with the mic, we were doing that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a matter of how hungry are you? How much are you willing to own yourself? And for me, I really cared about this project. Nothing was going to stand in the way of me doing this. And I was willing to own the entire process of it. And I think what happened is that our excitement eventually the the switch really went off when the charges came down and suddenly the value of the work that we were doing was very clear and so i think that that's you know my advice to people is that 
if you really believe in something and care about it, when there's a will, you must find the way. And it, it very likely will mean extra work on your part. But that, I think, will clarify how important it is to you. Because if you're not willing to do the extra work, then it probably isn't as important as you think it is. Yeah, yeah. Let's pivot a bit and talk specifically about No Limits. Okay. How did that come about? Was this your idea and and why? Yes, this is something that I've wanted to do for many, many years. Um, And in this space, you know, I love what you do with She Said, She Said. Thank you. I think it's... This space is such a great place to have genuine conversations and to go deeper. And for me, when I was at CBS News, I started a digital show called The Startup. And I had always thought about doing it as a podcast, but podcasts hadn't really taken off. So it was something that I did there. I came here. I wanted to do something similar. I was doing something similar here as a digital video. But I really, really wanted to try to break into podcasting, but we just hadn't really explored that territory yet at ABC. And so I kept kind of going back every couple of months, going back to ABC radio and saying, hey guys, what do you think? I think we could do this. I think it would be really interesting. And I also came to a point where so many of the people I was interviewing over and over again were incredible, but they happened to fall into the camp of being men. And I wanted to find a place where I could sit across the table from women like you and have conversations about the careers that they had built for themselves, the obstacles. And I really strongly believed that in the right environment as a podcast that not only would I be able to learn a lot from those conversations and be nourished by them, and I I really am, but that other people were so hungry, Mm -hmm. other women and men were so hungry for that material. And so I made that a really strong priority. And then in 2017, at the very beginning of the year, that's when we finally launched. And I say finally, because it felt like it had been a while. But now the funny thing is, we've been doing it for the last two years. And it like all of those, the challenges of getting there feel like this distant memory. And I think that's the funny thing for people. Like you think about success and you we hear constantly about success. And oftentimes we hear about success from the people who are successful. <laughs> Makes sense, right? But the way, that journey of getting there, mm-hmm. it just feels like a slog a lot of the time. And and people, a lot of people say, you know, you'll hear, I've interviewed, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of um, Ann Wojcicki, who started 23andMe. And she made the point, it took me 10 years to become an overnight success. And that's just the truth. Like all these people who you see as these, you think that they're these overnight successes, really they were punching it out, last person to leave, first person to show up, getting told no all the time, but here they are because they kept fighting. What's really resonated with you or what surprised you the most about the conversations that you've had with these women because you do go deeper. You do have an opportunity to talk about what did it take to really Mm -hmm. get there? What were those struggles? How did you feel? What have you learned? And what have you, and as you reflect on your own success, how do you think about it in that context? Well, I think that that's part of it for sure. I also think that 
when it comes to advice, you know, I ask everyone at the end of every interview, what's the worst advice you've received? And I find that the majority of the time, people are getting bad advice from people who love them. Right. I, ironically, yes. Right, right. And, it, and it's because there's a certain element of we all want to protect the ones that we love. And protection oftentimes comes in the form of what is the least risky path. And so when you go to someone you love and you ask them, should I take this risk? Their default in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases is going to be no, don't take the risk. I want a security blanket under the person that I love. So that's something. Also, um, you know, it's funny. I remember the, the first time I interviewed Diane von Furstenberg, she told me that she feels like a loser sometimes. And I was like, what? You, Diane von Furstenberg, feel like a loser at times? And it just, it's, that has been a rolling trend throughout the interviews that no matter how incredible somebody's career trajectory seems, no matter what their resume looks like, that if they're being honest, they have moments of self-doubt. And I mean, one of the things I, I think a lot about, and I, we get into this also on No Limits, social media and the amount of keeping up with the Joneses that people feel when they look at social media and that rabbit hole that people oftentimes fall down of, I'm not keeping up, I'm falling short, oh, there's 12 events and I'm not at any of them tonight. And just, I think, you know, to me, one of the important learnings that I've just come away with is take a step back. You don't have to do that. And if you allow yourself to fall down that rabbit hole, you can like completely spin out. So instead, just take yourself out of it and also focus on the path in front of you. The people who are, in my opinion, the happiest, who have in quotation marks at all, are the ones who have all of what they want because they focused on the things that they wanted in front of them as opposed to saying, what does she have? What does he have? Should I have this? Should I do this? Instead, it was like, I love this, so I'm doubling down on it. How about, you mentioned social media, another component is also criticism. Sometimes Mm. it's constructive, but oftentimes when it comes through social media and Twitter in particular, it's just negative, nasty, awful stuff. Yeah. How do you... How do you not let that get you down? Or what do you do when you struggle with something like that? When people are being mean to you, it's hard. Yeah, it can be. I mean, I first of all, I think I'm really lucky in that I have this husband and family and friends who they really back me up and support me every day. And I think that's just, that's also perspective for me. Their friendship, their love always keeps me grounded when I read things that are not nice or disturbing or whatever I consider myself lucky because when I see them today I have a much different reaction than I had maybe 10 years ago when I would see them and and get a little more bent out of shape now I I genuinely do think that all of that perspective just kind of makes me brush it off now if I spent my whole life, let's say, on Theranos and the dropout and somebody said something terrible about it and everybody started saying that same terrible thing, I can't tell you that I'd be cool with it. But the reality is I do think you have to come back to 
those those truly important relationships in your life Mm -hmm. and ground yourself in that and then also in the work you know if you love the work that you're doing then I think it's a lot easier to have blinders on about how other people think of the work that you're doing yeah who do you turn to beyond your close family members for constructive advice who are your mentors Mm -hmm. and mentor I the word is so misused because it really should be a relationship it should be anybody who's willing to give you advice it can be a peer it can be your boss it can be somebody who is a subordinate who do you turn to for that kind of input beyond your immediate family I think I'm really lucky in that a lot of women in this industry are are true. I consider myself genuine, really close friends, ride or die friends with a lot of women in this industry, uh, a number of women who work here inside of ABC News. Is that unusual? I mean, it seems like such a cutthroat it industry like that you're it. part of. It seems like it, but I actually think that we are all better and stronger because we're friends. I, I'm thinking right now, I mean, there are women inside of ABC News, but I am friends with a number of women at other networks and we're comparing notes. You know, this this industry, we negotiate our contracts. Many of us, m- most women, I would say, who are on camera have agents or attorneys that negotiate their contracts, but we are also talking to each other about what are the things should I be asking for? Um, how do you set your schedule? Who do you talk to? There's a lot to be gleaned from those conversations, and I would consider them less adversarial or com- competitive with each other and more. And, and I'm sure there are people who are listening right now who are thinking, no, I'm without, I don't want to say everyone's names because if I forget one friend's name, then I'll feel terrible about it at the end. But there are so i think i'm so lucky that we are sharing notes with each other and i would say that if you can find that kind of circle of people in your field men and women men and women really cherish that and double down on it and be as good of a friend to them as they are to you and one thing i would say you know maybe people out there feel competitive with the individuals inside of their company um if that is how you feel see if there are people in your industry who don't work in your company but that you can turn to and ask because there's a huge amount of value in that um and and i just it's not it's actually not just financial or professional value I think it's just having an ear and someone who understands what it's like to be in a role like yours yeah absolutely so you are very senior in your career you've accomplished a lot give me your perspective on this topic of continued risk-taking I've heard you talk about this and I have the same the same reaction to it that it becomes harder yeah even though you know more and you have a lot more success under your belt sometimes it can make taking those risks a little more tricky because mm-hmm. you do have so much writing on them right well and you've built something i think it's right. a lot easier when you're not shooting in the dark but you're starting from square one and you're not right right? you have nothing to lose my parents used to say what's the worst thing that can happen and i oftentimes would some some semblance of my answer was failure and failure is one thing when you don't have like a whole empire or you consider having something significant that you've built but 
when you've built something and that whole thing is potentially at risk, the stakes are higher and it's more nerve-wracking. Look, I don't know that I have in my mind a blanket solution. I don't think that taking risks that you should it should just be some capricious thing that you just swing at every at everything that comes at you and and see if you hit it out of the park. At the same time, I think that there are projects and I and I go back to Theranos um, and Elizabeth Holmes with this. I think that there are times that you have to in some ways ignore the end game. And what I mean by that is do it because you love it. Now, it can't be everything. I'm sorry to say I'm I'm a little too practical. I wish that I was somebody who could just be like do everything cuz you love it. That's not exactly how my career has worked, but I'm really happy with the career that I have. And I think it comes back to there are projects that I've done because a boss asked me to do them, and I'm proud of that work. But there are also the things that I've done because I just, I wasn't sure what it was going to look like or exactly whether it was going to be flawless, but I knew that there was something that really interested me. So I worked on it and I doubled down on it and it became something. And not everything's going to become something. But I also think that the things that don't amount to something are building blocks. If you you know, in this industry, you do a podcast, you do a digital show, you do something that it's good, but is it highly acclaimed? No, but that can be a building block to something bigger down the road. And you have to learn what works and what doesn't. And that comes to experimentation. Yeah. Okay. Let's turn the tables and ask you for your favorite, your favorite question. Mm. The worst worst advice that you've ever gotten. And we sort of touched on some components of that. But from your perspective, how would you answer that question that you ask of all your guests? So earlier in my career, I was pushed really hard to be, by one individual, to be more of a generalist. I love the domain that I live within. I love entrepreneurialism. I love technology. I love startups. I love business. I love the economy. But this person who was very well-intentioned felt that a greater world of opportunity would open to me if I got a little away from those interests. It was kind of like, if you're just totally open to anything, then the world can be your oyster. And hearing that advice it was not easy for me because i thought this person i i i believe experts and i that this person was not poorly intentioned by the way they wanted great things for me but i just ultimately came back to this idea that this is the world that the content that i cover is the content that i love and If I can bring to this content things that other people can't, that's what's going to make me special, as opposed to trying to be what every other person who's doing this job is. You do you better than anybody else, right? Yeah, I mean, and it's true of every single person (laughs) listening right now. Every single person out there has a gift and is something special. And trying to do what every other person is doing diminishes that, frankly. Yeah, it does. Okay, final question. Yes. Um, We ask every person who comes on, she said, she said, for a 
single piece of advice, a life hack or a mantra? Maybe it's something that you would have told your 20-ish year old <laughs> self as you were launching or something that you just remind yourself of every day. Maybe it's something that you'll tell Isabel when she's a little bit older. What would it be for you? Well, I think it's keep going. And that sounds so, so simple, but for me and, and really my mom was part of this thinking, there are going to be so many stumbles along the way, so many moments you wish you could do over, so many things that you think, if only. And focusing on those things just drags you down. Instead, if you just keep going and you decide that it's not over until I say it's over, there's a lot of potential in front of you. And I really, really believe that any day that you make that choice can be the beginning of the next chapter for you. It's beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you so much. I yeah. really appreciate it. It's so great. Thank you so much. This was really fun. And congratulations on everything you've done. Thank you. You too. You too. It's great to be with you. To learn more about Rebecca, take a look at the show notes. We'll include some links to No Limits, as well as some photos from today's visit. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.